Hello and welcome to the Village Church Podcast. My name is John and we are glad to have you join us. We work to deliver our most recent preaching content to you as soon as possible, so let's get into God's Word together. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. If you have your Bibles with you, I pray that you do. If you're using an electronic device, that's okay. Get God's Word in front of your face. If you need a Bible, you're like, I don't even own one. Please take one off the table and back. Blue Bible back there. Just take it, keep it, use it. Pass it on to someone if you need. 1 Corinthians 15. <clears throat> We're journeying through 1 Corinthians, a journey that started in October of 2019 and was interrupted in March of 2020 and was taken up again in, I guess, September? Maybe it was October of 2021. We are journeying through the first letter of Paul to the Corinthian church, a church that he visited, that he helped to establish, a church that he lived among for a period of time. He lived with them. This is not just a letter to a people he doesn't know. He's writing to people that he knows, encouraging the church, chastising them. We have looked and considered throughout the book that the Corinthian church was a messed up church full of messed up people. They were imperfect, and they are representative certainly of the village church. We're not perfect. We're messed up. I'm messed up. You're messed up. Turn to your neighbor and say, you're messed up. No, don't do that one. It's okay. Churches are not perfect. We are awaiting perfection. Perfection is coming. That's what we're singing about. What a foretaste of deliverance. How unwavering our hope. That's what we're waiting for. Churches are messed up places full of messed up people who through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ are saved from the wages of sin, transferred to the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, given hope. We have been considering that the Corinthian conduct in the world was not good through the first 10, 11, 10 chapters. Uh, Paul writes to them, your conduct in the world is not good. You're not living as Christians in the world. You're living as the world in the world. And in chapter 5, he even says to them, I hear that there is sin among you that not even the pagans approve of. So not only was their conduct in the world not good, it was actually worse than the world, if you can believe it. The church, I want, you to, I want that to settle into your head. The church's conduct was worse than the conduct of the world at that point. How awful. Their conduct in the world was not good. Their conduct in the church was not good. Their, their gatherings were a disaster. They were inappropriately gathering for the Lord's Supper. They were inappropriately exercising the gifts and abilities that God had given them. Everything's a disaster. And then Paul, in chapter 14, brings them to order. He helps them. Here is order for you when you come together. Like when the church comes together, it's not just a free-for-all where we just do whatever we want or whatever strikes someone's fancy. Trust me, you can go to churches like that right now, and I promise you, it's a wreck. It's a train wreck because everything is just happening at will. There's no order. There's no structure. And we learned in chapter 14 that God is not a God of confusion, but a God of peace, a God of order. So Paul has been helping them. Into chapter 15, we've looked at the resurrection. He starts by establishing the foundation of the gospel early in chapter 15. He does this to get to the resurrection of the dead. We spent last week, verses 12 through 20, talking about the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Paul looking at that from the angle of, if Christ has not been raised, here is the Christian life then. If Christ has not been raised... We are to be pitied, our preaching is in vain, your faith is in vain, you're not saved from your sin. If Christ is not raised, this is the greatest sham in all of human history. We've come to find out now, though, as we're working through, and certainly as we come into the middle, which will be next week, the middle of chapter 15, The reason that all of these problems were being experienced in the Corinthian church from the opening of the letter and division over who they were following to the lack of order and and, and proper worship in chapters 11, 12, 13, and 14, the reason all this existed is because apparently somehow at some point in time, some strange wind of doctrine blew into the church and challenged the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. You'll remember back in chapter 15, the 12th verse. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? This is a a, a frontal assault, no matter how they are going about it. It could have been 
passive, it could have been loud-mouthed. However they're going about it, this, this statement that has come out of the church, how can you say there is no resurrection of the dead? This is challenging the foundational doctrine of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. That Christ died. This is why Paul established it early in 15 that he died, that he was buried, that he was raised according to the scripture for our sins and that he appeared. This is the epicenter of the gospel. Without it, we've examined, there is no gospel. So now we come to understand that perhaps all of the struggle and all of the challenges and all the problems that the Corinthian church was facing from the beginning of the letter till now, perhaps it's because their doctrine was off. I know that there are people in the room who may have, their ears may have twinged a little bit when they heard the word doctrine. Pastor, you talk about doctrine a lot. Join us next week. That's all I'm going to talk about. It's going to be great. The fact is that if we're not standing on the sound word of God's word, then our doctrine is off. We must base and understand all that we do, all that we say, all that we preach must stand on God's word, sound doctrine, the teachings of Jesus Christ as carried on by the apostles, as written to us now to absorb into our life and live through faith in Jesus Christ. What miserable lives if Christ has not been raised. Today we will examine the great truth. In fact, Christ has been raised. Would you read along with me? Let's read 1 Corinthians 15, 20 through 28. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has, also, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Would you pray with me, please? Heavenly Father, we appeal to you for your help in this hour. Father, we are in great need of understanding and learning your truth. We understand that we can take information in, but it is your spirit that works within us and brings us understanding. So we are appealing to you, God, in this hour. Would you enlighten us to the truth of your word by the power of your spirit? Father, teach us. Teach us about the life that you have provided through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Teach us about what that means immediately, what that means eternally. Father, be with us in this hour in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're wondering how I'm going to work through the end of that, that seems so confusing, verse 28. That's why we take our time and work through sometimes word by word, but commonly phrase by phrase, because as you were following along and as I was reading it out loud, I'm like, man, this is just nothing but a cycle of confusion. Subjected and he's subjected, but he won't be subjected, except the subjected, su <sighs> I'm exhausted. That's why we're going to examine this portion of scripture a bit today. In fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. That's why I titled the sermon. In fact, Christ has been raised. It is not an unlikely thing that in your life you will encounter someone who will challenge you with, do you really believe that Jesus Christ came back from the dead? This is not unlikely for us to be challenged by. In fact, I have known people who have said, I, I simply can't believe that. The statement isn't, I'm not sure. The statement is, there's no way I can believe that Christ came back from the dead. And what is your response? How do you respond to someone that says that? I would challenge you. Paul says, well, in fact, Christ has been raised. This is fact attested to, and this is why Paul says in verse 12, we examined it last week, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, backing up into the earlier part of 15, verses 3 through 8, it's not just that we say he came back from the dead, it's that his resurrection is attested to by numerous people. This is factual evidence. Christ is raised from the dead. In fact, Christ is raised from the dead. Look what it says 
I want us to focus on this thought, verses 20 through 23. The resurrection has immediate and eternal effect. The resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ has immediate and eternal effect. You may be sitting here saying, yeah, pastor, I know. I'm sure that you think you know, and I'm sure that I thought I knew, but I'm sure that I didn't understand the extent that the resurrection has immediately and eternally. At the base of that, the simple saying is, I'm saved from my sin and I'll spend eternity with Christ. Not incorrect. Probably not the most complete way of saying it, though. Let's explore what is said. 1 Corinthians 15, 20 through 23. Notice the first words there. In fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. First fruit. I looked up, just for my knowledge and understanding, the old Greek word, which I didn't write down, but just wrote down what they understood the word first fruit to mean in ancient times, as Paul writes this to the Corinthians, he is saying that which is superior in excellence to others of the same class. I'll say it again. That which is superior in excellence to others in the same class. Do you understand why, why is this relevant and important, Pastor? Why are you saying this? Because in Christ, through faith in Christ by the resurrection, we are united with Christ and we have the righteousness of God placed on us because of Christ. We are now of the same class through faith in Christ, but he is superior. We are not Christ. We are made like Christ. And we will be with Christ, as we're going to examine this morning. First fruit, superior in excellence to others of the same class. The Bible talks about this thought often. Of Christ, in Colossians 1, verse 18, it says, He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Christ is superior. Why? Because Christ died for sin. Christ defeated sin in his living, in his death, in his longing, in his dying. We just sang the words to this very thought. Christ died for sin, died to sin, and resurrected, Romans says, living to God. So Christ in his death defeats sin. He is superior of those who come back from the dead through faith in him. We come through Christ. He is superior. First fruit. Of Christians, it's important, this thought of superior and excellence to others of the same class. Of Christians, the Bible says in James chapter 1, verse 18, of the Father's will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits. So this is the link to in Christ, who is the first fruit. He is superior in excellence to others of the same class. We are now made a kind of first fruit. You see the linking now through faith in Christ. He is superior. We are made like him, but we are not him. First fruit. Sometimes in the Old Testament, the word first fruit would refer to firstling or child. Because under the Old Testament prescription of the law, the firstborn would be offered up. Offer your first fruits. When God told the people of Israel, offer to me your first fruits, he didn't simply mean offer to me the first of what you get. He, he meant offer to me the first of everything you have. When a child opens the womb, the law literally says that child is given to God as first fruits. I'm thankful we don't do this anymore because I love my kids. But this is how the priesthood is established. This is how Levites are established. Like the first fruits are given to God. First fruits here, superior in excellence to others of the same class. We are not Christ. We are like Christ. What makes Christ the first fruit of those who have fallen asleep, right? Because that's what he says in verse 20. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. We understand that phrase, fallen asleep, to mean those who have died in this life. Not died to this life, because I pray that Christians in this room through faith in Jesus Christ are living dead to sin in this life, but those who have died in this life, the Bible uses the terms fallen asleep. Why? Because there's something else after this. This is temporary. There is eternal life. Christ is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. What makes him the first fruit of those who have fallen asleep? Because 
base fact of the gospel. He died a sinless death, defeated sin in his death, and came out of the grave. We explored last week. There are other resurrections in the scripture. There are other people who have died and come back to life in the scripture before Jesus Christ died and comes back to life. What makes Christ coming back to life so significant? No one endured the cross. No one defeated sin. No one came back from it. Christ did that work. It was his work exclusively, and he accomplished it. Look at verse, I want to draw your attention to the beginning of verse 21 and the beginning of verse 22. For as by a man came death, verse 21, let's call it 21a if you want. For as by a man came death, verse 22, the beginning. For as in Adam all die, we have to confront this. People have fallen asleep, people die. Why do people die? We've talked about this at great length. Because the wages of sin is death, both physical in this life and eternal. The Bible talks about dying physically. Death has come to all, and that is not just spiritual. Spiritual death has come to all. This maybe enlightens young minds in the room that have always wondered, what does it mean to be born again? It means you are spiritually dead, and through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are born again. You are born to new life in the physical life that you live. There is physical death. There is spiritual death. Those came through one man, Adam, his sin in the garden. I, didn't, I don't think I realized when, I didn't, There's, it's not, I don't think. I did not realize the doctrine we would cover in 1 Corinthians when I started teaching it. I had no idea the doctrine we would cover in 1 Corinthians 15. But these are things that people challenge today, that people do not understand today, that perhaps some of you in the room today do not understand. Maybe you're... Unsure of or leery of, or like, I just don't know. For as by a man came death, for as in Adam all die, why? This goes to the heart of original sin. We've talked about it. I don't want to say ad nauseum, but we can't ever talk about it enough. So if you're starting to tune out, don't, because you need to remember these things and have them at the bedrock of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. God placed Adam in the garden. You can see it. I wrote down the cliff notes in like four thoughts. Here they are. Original sin and its result, which is death. Ready? I'll, I'll do them quick and then I'll do them slow. Genesis 2, 16 and 17, God's commandment. Genesis chapter 3, verse 6, the commandment broken. Genesis 3, 19, the curse of death. Genesis 3, 22, life removed. That quickly. Genesis chapter 2, God commands Adam and Eve he says to Adam, of everything in the garden you may eat, but not of the tree of life, of the knowledge of good and evil. Right at that moment, there's the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And Adam can eat of the tree of life all that he wants to. God doesn't even talk about that. He says, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat, you shall die. This is commonly taught, if you're, if you're of, a, of an academic mind in the Bible, this is commonly taught as the covenant of works. I've talked about this before, where Man's relationship with God in this moment in the garden is based on what man does. If man does what God has said, everything is good. Do what I've said. Okay. Eat everything you want, but don't eat that. When you do, you will die. Understood. As long as Adam did what God said, Adam was good with God. Then what happens? Adam is created, Eve is brought to him, created out of him, brought to him. The serpent comes and tempts her with the reality of what is in front of her. She stares at the fruit. She sees that it's desirable for knowledge, desirable for food. She wants that. The impulse is to want that. Notice that in the scripture, it's vacant. We never see that she's condemned for wanting that, but she's not supposed to touch it. She's not supposed to eat it. And what does she do? She looks at it too long. She takes, she eats, she gives to Adam who eats. They break the commandment of God. They could not keep and fulfill the commandment of God. And what happens? The curse of death. Genesis 3.19 tells us, cursed are you. You will return to the dust. Of the dust I formed you and to the dust you shall return. Man's life now finite. And then in 3.22 life is removed. There's the tree of knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life. And God says in Genesis chapter 3, verse 22, let us remove the tree of life, lest man reach, take and eat from it, and live forever. Death has come to all men through one man's sin. 
we are now, perhaps you've heard this phrase and never understood it, we are now all of us members of Adam's race. If you're Chronicles of Narnia fans, race of Adam, you're of Adam's race. It's a direct, like Lewis is using a direct pull on the Bible. You're members of Adam's race. Yes, yes we are. We are members of Adam's race. Romans tells us that sin came through one man and death spread to all men because all men came from one man. You're like, Pastor, I can't believe that. I'm sorry, you have to take that up with the author and the designer of all of humanity. We come from one man. We are all members of Adam's race. He is, in technical terms, in legal terms, he is our federal head. He's the one from whom and to whom all humanity is responsible for. Like, great, we come from that. You might look back at your lineage and be like, I don't want to talk about my ancestry. Let's not talk about that. As Christians, we kind of have that. I don't want to talk about my dad, Adam. Uh, He didn't do so great at being a dad originally. In fact, he kind of wrecked everyone. Right? Do you understand? You, you, I promise that you all understand, because every one of us live in families affected by something that has gone wrong somewhere along the line, and you trace back and look at it, you're like, oh, well, that, that, uh, maybe you're, right now, maybe you're living in the, I'm not going to be like that. I'm making a hard shift right here, and I'm going to tune into God's word and not be what that was. Adam is our head, Romans tells us that sin came through him, because when he sinned, all men coming from him now are born into sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. And Romans 6.23 tells us, memory verse in Sunday school, there are kids sitting here that could say it for us, the wages of sin is death. This is what came from Adam. He says, Christ is raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And the reason that people fall asleep is because by a man came death, and in Adam all die. Now look at the end of verse 21 and the end of verse 22. Look at the first part. For as by a man came death, the second part, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, first part, second part, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. I wrote these down so that I could see them together, yet separate. Romans 21 and, or, uh, Corinthians 15, 21 and 22. As by one man came death, in Adam all die, By a man has come the resurrection of the dead. In Christ, all shall be made alive. It's interesting. If you were to turn to Genesis chapter 3 and you were to read the account of man's sin in the garden, right at the exact moment when Eve sees the fruit, takes the fruit, eats the fruit, gives to Adam who eats the fruit, and sin wrecks everyone, right at that moment, God comes to them. Where are you? I heard you, I was afraid, I was naked, so I hid. Who told you you were naked? Did you do what I told you not to do? Right, and God all-knowing already knows the answers to all of this. Of course you did what I told you not to do. Right in that moment, Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, the promise of Christ is given. Right at the point of original sin, before the curse, mind you, you can read it, Before the curse on man, before life is removed, before death, eternal God is showing the plan of eternal son coming when he says to the woman, your seed will crush the head of the serpent. The serpent, you serpent, will strike at his heel and he, this is is the Christ figure, Christ being prophesied the first time just through, he will crush your head. Right in that moment, I want to draw our attention to why this is important. Right in the moment where man's sin breaks all of humanity, God interposes the solution. It's provided right as soon as it happens. You wrecked it, Adam, it's broken now. And Christ will fix it. It's been the eternal plan of God from eternity past. And you'll remember from our time in Ecclesiastes that God has made it so that we cannot see beginning from end. It has been planned from before time began. And right at that moment, why, Pastor, do you keep saying right at that moment? Because Paul would write in Romans, at the right moment, 
while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Do you understand? God is carrying out his plan among humanity. And right when man comes to its weakest moment, right there, God is there executing his plan to redeem fallen man. I made this note. It was profound to me. You may say, Pastor, that's a terrible note. You shouldn't have shared it, but I'm going to anyway. In his life, Jesus did what Adam could not do. What do you mean, Pastor? I mean, he lived sinless. In Christ's life, he did what Adam could not do. Adam could not not take the fruit. Eve wanted to take the fruit. And when she gave it to Adam, we don't have a biblical account of Adam saying, Eve, what have you done? What in the world? And men, if you want to check yourself about where you're at with your family, Adam should have been there saying, you've done wrong, Eve. Now you've got to be alone with God, but I'm not touching it. But he couldn't. Why? God gave him the ability to do it. He could take it. He could eat it. And he wanted to, and he did. Jesus comes. This is why Jesus living a sinless life is so important for us. He was sinless in his living. In his life, Jesus did what Adam could not do. He fulfilled the righteous requirement of God. Adam could not do it. He broke it. He could not do it. Christ came. He did it. In his life, Jesus did what Adam could not do. In his death and resurrection, Christ undoes all of what Adam had done. Do you follow and do you understand the foundational level of all of this? Adam broke it. Christ did what Adam couldn't do. Christ undid all of what Adam had done. Beautiful sweeping movement of what Christ actually accomplished in his life. First, Adam could not obey God perfectly. Second, Adam, this is why Paul refers to him what later in verse 45, he calls him uh, the, the last Adam. In Romans, he calls him the last Adam. We just say, see the pure and better Adam. Do you understand that Adam is a figure of mankind, imperfect, and Christ is the figure of mankind, perfect. We are under Adam as our federal head born into this life, and Christ then comes, the perfect man, this is why he was born of a virgin, and not conceived in natural ways. If Adam, if if Christ had been conceived in natural ways, what would have happened? Man sinful, ruined because of Adam, would have conceived the Christ. Instead, born of a virgin, like why? I don't believe born of a virgin. No, born of a virgin is just as pivotal to our faith as resurrected is to our faith. He was born in purity. He was born unlike other men. He was not born as, though he was born naturally, he was not born as natural. That's why, what does it say in Luke? We just had celebrated Christmas in the heaven. What does it say? The power of the Most High will overshadow you, and he will be called the Son of the Most High God because his conception was pure and of God in the purity of a virgin disconnected from the brokenness of fallen man. In his life, Jesus did what Adam could not do. In his death and resurrection, he undid all of what Adam had done. If he fulfilled the righteous requirement in his life, in his death and resurrection, he made righteousness then available to us. 2 Corinthians would say, I believe it's chapter 5 and verse 21. He, God, made him, Jesus, who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. Are, are some pieces, like I, I make specific eye contact with people who are like note takers. Are pieces clicking into place for you on how important and foundational some of this stuff is? Like we need to understand this so that we are bolstered in our faith and not just, yeah, I believe in Jesus, he died and rose again, great. No, well, you don't have any framework to talk about why you need to be saved if you don't understand that Adam broke for all mankind our ability to be righteous. And Christ came correcting for mankind our ability to be righteous. This is the Christian hope. This is why he moves on to verse 23. Each in his own order. Christ, the first fruits. Then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Christ has been raised. He is preeminent in resurrection from the dead. He is the firstborn of the dead. He is the firstborn of those who have fallen asleep. And at his coming, every person saved in this life through faith in Jesus Christ, according to God's mercy and by God's grace, will become 
first fruits with the Lord Jesus Christ. And to be honest, then the rest of this sermon falls off the rails, and I'm going to talk about stuff that nobody understands and doesn't care about because we don't read our Bibles enough. Look what he says in verse 24. Then comes the end. We don't like this. In humanity, we hate ending. We despise change and we despise ending. How many people, how many times have you said, how many people have said, I don't like goodbyes? Why? Because we don't like endings. When the movie's over, we want the next one to start. When, when, when the, when, well, what is it? We used to be a cassette, flip it over, VCR, rewind it. What do we do now? Hit repeat on the playlist because we don't want the playlist to stop. We, we keep going. What do you mean we're out of, what do you mean we're out of food? I, I want to keep, the Swedish meatballs are gone, I want to eat more. We don't like endings. Then comes the end. I love the declarative nature of Paul's words here. Then comes the end. He goes on though, he doesn't just say that. Then comes the end when he, Christ, delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Then comes the end. For those in the, in the room that like big words, like the, the study of big words, we've talked about all the different ologies. I've mentioned this one before. This one is eschatology, which is just our word to define the doctrine of last things. In our day, the most common way to say it is, I like the end times prophecies, or I like to read about the end times. I'm working to hard shift my vocabulary to not say end times. Did you know that end times is really a faulty way for us to say it? Did you know that the Bible doesn't really say end times? The Bible talks about last days, the last days, the days are drawing near, the days are coming to a close, the hour is short, all these things are used, but end times is a bit funny. You know what's going to happen? It's the end of time. It's not end times, it is the end of time. This is what we don't like. This is where we start to bristle a little bit, and people in the room are like, oh gosh, pastor, come on. No, it's the end of time. And did you know one thing that all the apostles and the disciples and the proclaimers of God's word throughout the Old Testament, the early church, and for the last 2,000 years, do you know what they have been heralding? The return of Jesus Christ, which is the end of time. There is an end coming. An end is coming. Time began, time will end. In adult Sunday school this morning, they started talking about the seven seas of history. This is from a biblical worldview. The seven seas of history, which maybe you're familiar with in this room. Uh, if you're not, there's a song I can recommend by an artist, and if you listen to it a thousand times from here to Walmart and back with your kids in the van, you'll have it memorized too. But the seven seas are creation, corruption, catastrophe, Christ, and the cru creation, corruption, catastrophe, Confusion, Christ, and I had to sing the song because that's how it songs do for us. They inform our learning. Creation, corruption, catastrophe, confusion, Christ, and the cross, and consummation. Do you want the rundown? Do you want, do you want the rundown? Pastor, what are you talking about? Creation, right? In the beginning, God created everything. Here we are. Creation, corruption, Adam. Good job. Way to go. Catastrophe, flood, global, killed everyone but Noah, his wife, his sons, and their wives, and two of every kind of animal killed them. Catastrophe. Confusion. Look, they have one language and there's nothing they can't do. Come let us go down there and confuse their languages. Confusion. Babel. Genesis 11. Creation, corruption, catastrophe. Creation, corruption, catastrophe. Confusion. Christ. I had the song. It helps. I was telling you about science, so the song helps. It helps me. Christ comes into the world and what does he do? He does what Adam couldn't do and he undoes all of what Adam did. The cross. Oh, the cross of Christ. You ever just sit and get lost in the thought of the cross of Christ? You ever, you ever just think what Christ did on the cross? Especially, I'm talking to you if you're here, faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. You ever just dwell on it? There's a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. Christ comes offers us life through faith in him. We are able to be the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Christ, cross, consummation. Consummation. 
the consummation of the ages, or if you want to understand it in easier terms, the completion of time, the end of time. An end is coming. Time began, time will end. The consummation of the ages will happen when the Lord Jesus Christ returns and he is coming. We do not herald the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ appropriately in our churches. I am guilty of not heralding the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ appropriately in our churches. Time is short, and if you don't like it, you're supposed to leave because that's separating in this life those who have truly confessed the Lord Jesus Christ and are longing for the day he appears and those who are like, yeah, I just want to live a good life and have all the benefits of a good life now. I just don't want to die and have everything come to an end. It's all going to come to an end. Christ will return. He will separate sheep and goats. He will take his people to eternal rest and he will send those who are not his people to eternal destruction where they will be destroyed by fire for eternity. Not like they're dead and gone and now we have ashes on a... No. Perpetually destroyed eternally by fire. An end is coming. Prior to Christ, time moved toward the cross. After the resurrection of Jesus Christ, ever since, time has been moving toward his second coming. We are caught between cross and consummation in this life right now. On a sliding scale, creation, corruption, catastrophe, confusion, Christ, and the cross, here we are, and the consummation of the ages is coming. At the consummation of the ages, the completion of time, there will be two main events that happen. And they're highlighted right here. Look what he says. Then comes the end. When he delivers to the kingdom the Father, when he delivers, to the, ki- when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and every power. At the completion of time, two main events happen. The final vanquishing of all the enemies of God. Never again a voice to rise against our God and King. All done away with and put away for all of time. And the eternal union of God's people to himself. Like if you're not living, I'm sorry, I'm so bold to say it. If you're not living with a desire to have this life over with, that you may be in the presence of God. I don't know what gospel you've believed in because that's the only hope and the only witness and the only testimony that all of the disciples, that all of the apostles, that all of the preachers throughout all of time have ever heralded. This will end and that will begin forever. We are to be longing and awaiting the day that we are taken to be home with the Lord. Would you turn with me? Keep your finger in 1 Corinthians. Turn with me over to Revelation. Why are we supposed to desire this? I don't, I like this life. I, I like my home and my, my family, my, my stuff and things like God has given me. I like these things. Right, enjoy them while they're here, but don't lose sight of where you're going. This is the whole theme of Ecclesiastes in which we spent eight months. Don't love it too much. You can love it too much. It's all going to end. The completion of time, two main events happened. The final vanquishing of all of God's enemies, death being the last, and the eternal union of God's people to himself. Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 through 4. An end is coming, and look what happens. At Revelation chapter 21, we're talking about what happens after the end of time. Okay? God has given us a glimpse to the future. What happens? Here it is. Revelation 21, 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem. This is John writing as God shows him all of these things. I saw the new, the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. And they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. What did Paul say? The last being death. It will be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, 
nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. There is an end to all that we know coming at the return of the Lord Jesus Christ, the consummation of the ages. At that time, when, it says in verse 24 of 1 Corinthians, when Christ delivers the kingdom to God the Father, at that time, the kingdom delivered to Christ, it will be the holy bride talked about in Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians 5 says, a bride without spot, without wrinkle, without blemish, holy Christ will say, Father, the church, your bride, the bride, holy, perfected. That's when, like on that day, all of the nonsense of how church gets messed up today is going to be gone. Like no more, I don't like this, I don't like that, I don't like them, I wish they would, and blah, done. Perfected in Jesus Christ for all of time. It will be the kingdom without end. Spoken of, search it out if you want to. It's a fun trail throughout all of scripture. Christ's rule will know no end and his kingdom will know no end. The kingdom delivered to Father. On that day, the end will come and Christ will deliver the kingdom to the Father. On that day, what a thought. Christ's work as the only mediator between God and man will be complete. It will be finished. Remember Christ on the cross died and says, it is finished. What happened? What was finished? The atoning for sin. It's almost like, I don't want to write into scripture, how dare we ever seek to do that, but it's almost like we could almost say there's a second, it is finished. I've completed the work, Father. Mediator, over. Let's get on with reigning as king with our people. He will deliver a pure bride and his work as mediator will be complete. Why is this important? Because you need a mediator right now. Because we do not come to God the Father without the Lord Jesus Christ. He has made the way. He is the sacrifice that purifies us. It's his righteousness that God looks at. Do you understand? We're not righteous still. God is looking at the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of him. It's his righteousness on us that God looks at. His work as mediator will be over. It's not over right now. Verse 27, these confusing words. What is being talked about here? Last enemy in verse 26, to be destroyed is death. We long for the day. Spiritual, physical, death, no more. Verse 27, for God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. Pause. There is a line of teaching that is false. And here it is the subjection of the Son, the eternal subjection of the Son. There is a level of mystery that we're not going to get into here. We can't touch because the Bible doesn't touch it, but here it unveils that there is a mystery that we haven't understood. That Christ in the second person of the Trinity, man, Jesus Christ, what does the Bible tell us? Fully God, fully man. Remember we talked about this back in chapter 11? The head of Christ is God. Christ the Son is living his life, sinless, perfect, showing us, demonstrating to us, willing submission to the Father. All things have been put under Christ. All things have been subjected to Christ. But this is not God saying, all things are going to be subject to you. You are subject to me. Why? This is deeply Trinitarian, and I'm sorry to bring up such deep doctrine with you all, but man, I pray that God uses it and sharpens you. There are things in the Trinity we don't understand. This we do understand. They are all the same, and they are all God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They are the same in power. They are the same in attribute. They are the same in their eternity, but they are distinct in how they operate. The Father did not put on flesh and become the Son, Jesus Christ. The Son put on flesh, and the Father remained in heaven. The Spirit has not put on the flesh of Jesus Christ. They are distinct in their relationship. This is, this is deep, and we're about to the bottom of how far we can go. Equal in substance and power and attribute. They do not have a rank. Do you understand? Well, there's God first and foremost. There's Jesus, yes, sir, Lord God, and there's the Holy Spirit. Whatever the two of you say, I'm ready. To... No, no. They are working together always. They're equal. 
Yet they are distinct in their relationship. They are distinct in, 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 in relative, uh, uh, what do I want to say? I wrote it down so I wouldn't forget. So how about I look at my notes? Several relative properties was good words when I was taking notes. That's why we do it. They have differences. They are one God. And they operate in ways that are not always clearly revealed to us. God the Father did not die on the cross. The Holy Spirit did not die on the cross. The Lord Jesus Christ, fully man, fully God, died on the cross. Do you understand where we're coming from when we talk about the depth of the Trinity here? So when they come, all things subjected to Christ, we need to understand something. I don't want you to fall prey to, well, Christ is just doing the work of God the Father. He says that. Jesus said, I came to do the will of him who sent me. So it's not hard for us to start drawing these lines of, well, it kind of looks to me like Jesus Christ is taking orders from God. Jesus Christ is God. He is not the Father. He is not the Holy Spirit. Within time, the God of time, Father, Son, Holy Spirit from all eternity past, within time, the God of time placed the Lord Jesus Christ over all things. Four or five quick references. Matthew 28, Jesus says, all authority has been given to me. John 3.35, Jesus says, the Father has given all things to the Son. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 22, says that the Father put all things under Jesus Christ, and it goes on to say he is the head of all things, the church. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 22. 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 22 says, all angels, all authorities, all powers have been subjected to Christ. Matthew chapter 8, the disciples say, who is this that the wind and the waves obey him? Others said, he casts out demons. Do you understand? The Lord Jesus Christ stands immovable as the authority over all things. There is nothing that is not under or out of his authority and his control. He is God. He is not the Father. Why is this relevant? Pastor, why are you going through all this stuff? The consummation of ages, the completion of time, we're getting a glimpse of it right here in Paul's understanding, the, the, the Holy Spirit working through Paul to inform the Corinthian church about the doctrine that was so messed up among them. Paul is saying he's going to deliver the kingdom to God. He who is all things, verse 28, when all things are subjected to him, the Father, when Jesus brings the kingdom and gives it to him, and all the enemies are vanquished, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him. Do you understand? Christ's work as mediator complete. When we step into eternity, we will no longer come to the Father by the Spirit, through the Son. That will be done when time is ended and we come into eternity. We will come and we will be eternally before Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So as he ends up in verse 28, that God may be all in all. We, we, we talk about it all the time. I can't wait till I'm in heaven and all the mysteries are made known. This is one that will be made known to us. No more. Now I am before the Trinity, and I worship God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit together as one. Romans talks about us reigning with Christ. Second Timothy, Paul talks about us reigning with Christ. In Revelation, we will see his face and we will worship him forever. Christ does not disappear. He's not gone. We are reigning with him. What do we do to apply it? How do we, what do we take away from it? Like, Pastor, you've talked about a lot. What do we do? The resurrection had and continues to have immediate eternal effect. Every member of Adam's race is guilty of sin, hell-bound and hell-deserving, every one of us. The judgment and wrath of God are coming, the Bible says, because of sin. The only hope to escape the judgment that exists is faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. The only hope is new birth. Have you experienced new birth by the power of the Spirit through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? So the words of Christ echo on until the consummation of the ages, until the completion of time. We find ourselves, in fact, Christ has been raised, and to us still comes the words, repent and believe the gospel. It has immediate effect. If you've believed and trusted through faith in Jesus Christ, you understand the freedom that you have found from your sin. 
immediate effect. If you have believed and trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, there is an eternal effect. Death has no dominion over Christ. Through faith in Christ, death has no dominion over you. Even though he dies, yet shall he live. Have you believed in Christ? On a day like this, talking about these topics, the completion of time, the return of Christ, it's wrong to not ask. Have you trusted? By faith alone. If you're trying to work your way to your salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ, you're working to no end. You will not work your way to it. We come through faith and through faith alone. Is according to God's mercy and by his grace through faith in Jesus Christ, have you placed your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? Have you gained the foundational doctrine of the resurrection to understand there is an end coming? The end will come. Are you ready in the Lord Jesus Christ to stand on that day to be counted as the sons and the daughters of the Most High God for eternity to see his face, to worship him? If you have questions about salvation, I would love to talk with you. If you have not believed accurately in the gospel, if you're not sure, you're like, Pastor, I don't know, please talk to me. Don't let that pass. If you have questions and you're not sure, please reach out and talk to someone. For now, let's pray and we'll sing and go. God, we thank you for today. We thank you for your word. Deep and sometimes heavy and I am not a good communicator so that makes it more difficult. But God, your word, it endures forever. It is firmly fixed in the heavens. We praise you, God, that in fact Jesus Christ has been raised Father, help us to understand these great truths to the depth of our soul. Help us to communicate them to people. Father, help us to herald the end is coming. Father, help us to rejoice and long to see the day when the end comes and you bring a perfect bride before the Father and we are free from this life and free for eternity to be with you. We echo John's words, come, Lord Jesus, come. We love you. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for joining us this week. If you have any questions about anything you just heard or if we can pray for you, please contact us at info at Until next time, stay in God's word.